going to be reading a few verses from 1 Timothy and then some verses out of 2 Timothy. We continue on in our series. And the series we have entitled Living in Truth. And um, I explained to the church that I really felt like I needed to spend this year just going back to the basics and just teaching those things that are fundamental in our walk with God. And um, for those that are fairly new, it's crucial for them. But even for those that have been around a while, it becomes exceeding, exceedingly beneficial to just be reminded of what got us to where we are in the first place. Because what brought us into the church is what's going to keep us in the church. Praise God. 1 Timothy chapter 1, reading verses 18 and 19. 1 Timothy 1, verses 18 and 19. I do want to say, by the way, thank you to everyone who participated in the prayer meeting the other night. I was very, very pleased with the good turnout and participation. And I know some were praying at home, some were praying wherever they were, and I appreciate all of the prayer that went up. And uh, I want to say thank you. I want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. I love this church. You are a great group of people. I appreciate it very, very much. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck. So verse 18, he begins with this statement, this charge I commit unto thee. I'm committing this to your hands. Then turning to chapter 6 and verse number 20, Chapter 6 and verse 20, Paul opens this letter by saying, I'm committing something to you. I'm committing a charge to you, Timothy. And now he's going to close this letter, chapter 6, verse 20. He says, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust. Avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science, falsely so-called. So he opens by committing something to Timothy and he closes by saying, Now Timothy, I want you to hang on to what I'm committing to you. I want you to keep it. Don't lose what I'm committing to you. Then in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1 Verses 12 through 14, this being one of the last 
letters, most likely, that Paul penned in his lifetime. And he's writing to his son in the gospel once again. And in what was most likely his last communication with Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 14, he said, For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I believe. And I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed unto thee, keep by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. Once again, he's reminding Timothy, I've committed some things to you now. I'm trusting you with some things. And I want you to take care of that which I've committed to you. I want you to be faithful to it, Timothy. And then 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2, our final verse of Scripture here for our text. 2 Timothy 2 and 2. He said, And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. So he has stressed to Timothy in his first epistle, I'm I'm committing something to you. It's the way he opens it. He closes it by saying, keep what I've committed. His second letter, he opens by saying, keep what I've committed. And then he goes on to say, now, Timothy, something else. I don't want you just to keep it, but I want you to commit it to someone else. And I want you to commit it to people who will be faithful enough that they will commit it to others. And so this sense of commitment is the thing that Paul is stressing in these two epistles. And that's what we're talking about. Uh, We started some weeks ago before Brother Herring arrived and we got one part of it done and Today we start with part two of this lesson on commitment. Commitment. Let's put our Bibles down. Let's lift our hands and lift our voices. Let's ask the Lord to speak to us today. I need His help. We all need His help. Let's ask for His touch today. Everybody, let's pray. Lord. Thank you. Let's praise Him one more time before we're seated. Everybody, let's praise the Lord. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Praise God. 
Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. Let me do a review. It has been several weeks, and so it would be good for us to go back and reconsider the things that I covered in that lesson. I talked about uh, in the first part of this lesson the need to have a singular focus in our life. In fact, I made this statement that the outcome of one's life depends on two things. First, on what goals he's committed to. And secondly, the strength of that commitment. Those two things will determine your future. They determine your ultimate destination. To what are you committed today? To what are you committed? And how strong is that commitment? The only way a person can be truly committed is to have a singular focus. You you can't divide your loyalties. You can't divide your obligations and truly be effective. We talked about that some even Tuesday night, talking about having divided loyalties. Um, As is obvious in the many verses in our text, Paul strove diligently to instill this sense of commitment into his son in the gospel, Timothy. He wanted to make sure, because especially as he knew his life was drawing to a close, he didn't want to have lived his life in vain. He wanted those who were coming after him to keep the charge and to keep it right. I I, I don't want to get too sidetracked today, but I'm telling you, I'm telling you, Uh, We watch and have watched through the years. This is not a new phenomenon, but, but, but I've watched through the years as men have entrusted things to, to another generation and watched that generation lay it aside and forget all about it. Now, I'm going to tell you, I believe in great part it's because that that younger generation was never truly taught why these things were important. I, I, I know firsthand that much of what's happened in the apostolic movement over the last 50 years, we, we've really gotten to a place where we are entertained by preaching. And teaching becomes a bit of a drudgery. And people don't really want to just sit and listen to a Bible teacher anymore. Just say something that's going to have us on our feet and have us pounding the pulpit and and pounding on the platform. And and all of that's great and wonderful. Except for the times when people don't even know what the preacher's saying and they're still pounding. And I have seen that happen. They're just caught up in the emotion of the moment. They have no clue what he's talking about. They're just pounding away. But preaching becomes an entertainment sport for us if we're not careful. It's one of the reasons why I feel like uh, things like Holy Ghost Radio and 
some of these other things that are out there. Really, really. I'm not saying that they're wrong, but I'm saying there's a real danger there. That you get to the place where you just are entertained by preaching. And it's not moving you. It's not stirring you. Preaching's not affecting you. Just something you play in the background. I, I, I pray we don't reach that point. But, but I said that to say that it's gotten to the place where it's more hype than it is substance. And so people are not really taught I'm, I don't, I'm not throwing stones at anybody. I'm telling you, this is true whether you're in a conservative church or a liberal church. It's been true. Men just get up and say, this is what we're doing. So everybody says, amen, and they try to do it. And that's why you've got a younger generation that says, there's no reason. There's no Bible for that. And so they quit preaching it because there's, quote, no Bible for that. Well, I don't want this church to ever be that way. And I know, I know that the day is going to come that I'm going to have to step off the scene. I know that day's going to arrive. That day's going to take place. But I hope and pray that I put something into the truth church. That you're not moved by the hype of just fast-paced Loud, emotional preaching. But you know why we live the way we live. And if the next man, whoever he may be, tries to back down from the things that we have stood for through the years, there will be something in your heart that says, no, 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 I know what the Word of God says. And you know, this is as good a time as any to interject this, but your commitment ought to be to the truth above a commitment to this assembly. I want you committed to this assembly. Don't misunderstand me. A lot of people don't have that commitment either. And you need to be committed. You need to feel like you're a part of this. You need to feel an obligation to be here. That's right. You, you, need, you need to feel a sense of obligation to be in the house of God. But I'm going to tell you, your obligation needs to be to the truth above everything else. Because if I ever stop preaching truth, or if I'm gone and the next man stops preaching truth, don't you stick around here. You stand for what's right. And listen, saints, that's why you've got to know it. That's why you've got to study it. That's why you've got to read this book. Ronald Reagan. I, I, I have fond memories of the Reagan presidency. I don't mind telling you. This is not a political statement. I'm just telling you. America was in a good place during those years. And, um, but Ronald Reagan had a philosophy, the Reagan doctrine, if you please. And it was trust but verify. 
Anybody ever heard that? Trust but verify. I'm telling you, that's the way we ought to be, even as saints. Trust but verify. You don't just take something that's said. You verify it. You go back to the Bible. You check it out. Saints, listen. Listen to me. This is why I want you to have a Bible when you come to church. It's why we put Bibles on the back of the pews. Don't just read what's on the screen. Find it in your Bible. We put it on the screen for those who don't know how to find it in their Bible. When guests come, visitors are here, and they don't know Joshua from Genesis. You tell them, let's turn to the book of Revelation, and they start at the first page of the Bible trying to find it. That's why we have scriptures on the screen. So they don't have to spend the whole day trying to find the scripture, and by the time they find it, you've moved on to another one. But for the good saints of God, You need to have your Bible out. You need to be reading these verses of Scripture from your own Bible. You know, it may be that while the preacher's reading the verse, God may just speak to you from that verse. And you need to be able to mark it down. Well, this is just just basic teaching, but it is what it is. And it's important. There's ever a time in which our world needs to learn about commitment, it's now. It's now. Commitment is a missing ingredient in today's society. People are committed to one thing and one thing only, and that's themselves. That's it. It's all they care about is them. It's a truth. I'm telling you, even even in this generation, parents, parents don't care about their kids. They care about themselves. That's why they set them in front of a television for hours on end. They don't want to interact with them. That's why kids can just throw fits, scream, holler, beat on their parents. Parents don't want to have to deal with it. They're just going to go stick them in a room somewhere, put them in front of a screen so that they're not bothered. Well, I'm telling you the truth today. God help us. God help us. Let let me tell you, I'm I'm just going to throw this out there too, but all this garbage that's going on with these, these parents letting their kids transition to another gender. You want to know what that's all about? It's about mom and daddy, number one, not having the guts to stand up for what's right, but number two, they don't want to be intimidated by the woke population. So it goes back to mom and daddy not having a commitment to their own kids. I'm going to tell you something. They don't know what they want or what they need. That's why you are there. Dear Lord, have mercy. If every kid was able just to decide what they are at whatever time, 
we'd have a whole lot of four-year-olds on the police force. Well, I know. Look, I'm, I'm just telling they don't know what they want. They're kids. You got to teach them. If somebody would have told me 40 years ago that I would have to teach my church that you need to teach your children, I would have said they're crazy. But we're at that place. You don't just give in to everything a child wants. You don't just let them have anything they think. They need to know that boys are boys and girls are girls and, 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 and there's no changing that. I don't care what kind of surgery you get. I don't care what kind of clothes you put on. At the end of the day, let them look at your DNA. That's one thing they cannot change. No surgery is going to change your DNA. And your DNA says whether you're a male or a female. So deal with it. Elder Lonnie Marcus, some of you remember him, used to come here during our sore conferences. Great friend. He was truly a gentle giant. He really was. But he used to say, you know what? If you've got a lisp in your voice, and your voice is an octave or two too high, he said, you need, to go, you need to go gargle some gravel, go hire on at a dude ranch somewhere, learn how to walk right, learn how to act like a man. That's right. Come on, mamas, don't buy your boys baby dolls. I've watched, I've watched mamas do it and had their boys grow up to be homosexual. Now, I'm not telling you that's the only reason. There's a whole lot of other problems. But there's something wrong when you don't want your boy to be a boy. And your girl to be a girl. There's something wrong with you, mama. Something wrong with you. I got to be nice. I got to be nice. It's almost Mother's Day. I better be sweet to the mamas right now. Well, you know, I mean, when, 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 when we've had as much revival as we've had around it, there's a whole lot of pastoring that's just backed up in me. And this is, what, this is why we can't get very far in these lessons. You understand that. I just... It just happens. It just happens. It just flows out of me. I, and, and especially the older I get. I tell you, I'm just more and more concerned. Now, I thank God there are some good young people that love the truth, that are standing for what's right. I thank God for it, and I don't want to sound like there's, that there's nobody that's doing what's right. That's not the case. But there's a whole lot of young people that don't understand why we do it. It's why I've always said that people will understand, will, will, will obey things that they understand much quicker than they will just telling them, obey them to have the rule over you. Now that verse is there. 
It's, it's scripture. It's anointed. It's true. It's God-breathed. It's divinely inspired. But I think this church can testify it's not a verse you're going to hear me use a whole lot. I think that if I teach you enough of the principles and precepts of the Word of God, those that are honest-hearted are just going to do it. And I don't have to get up and push my weight around. I don't have to demand that you obey me. I show you in the Scripture what it says. And good-hearted, God-loving people are going to follow the Scriptures. Call me naive or whatever, but I believe that's the way it is. There are a few knuckleheads around. They're they're around, Brother Larson. They're around. There's a few knuckleheads around. No matter how much you show them, they're going to do what they want to do. So once in a while, you know, you got to pull the pastor card on them. But, But I'm telling you, that's a last resort in my life. I just tend to trust people to do what's right. Well, hallelujah. Commitment, commitment. We need commitment in the hearts of people today. Sacrifice has become a stranger to so many. Compassion is a byword rather than a heartfelt emotion. And it really is. I mean, you know, it's, dear God, help me. I've got to get off of all this nonsense. But, well, it's, it's not, what I'm saying is not nonsense, but it's, I'm addressing nonsense that's going on. But, I mean, I've actually seen people who, who, who promoted, let, let's buy the homeless shopping carts so they got a place to keep their stuff. I mean, really? How much sense does that make? What good is a shopping cart going to get? You know, it's, let me get off of all that. But anyhow, it's, they don't have compassion. They just talk about compassion. In fact, let me just tell you, I really am not trying to get political, but I'm just going to tell you the truth. Those that are in the liberal camp, Talk about how we need to help the poor. But look at their tax returns. And see that they give almost nothing to charity. You know what they mean by we need to help the poor? They want to take it out of your billfold. And make you do it, but they don't want to do it. Well, that's why socialism doesn't work. Because at some point you run out of everybody else's money. Lord, why am I even dealing with this today? I, I promise I didn't get up on the wrong side of the bed. I got up on the same side I always get up on. I, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. But anyhow, maybe somebody needs to hear it. Ah, commitment. Commitment has become an outdated idea whose time in the minds of many has simply come and gone. But it's time for us to return to that old-fashioned quality of commitment. Now, that's the review for today. So I've still got 
quite a bit of time here uh, to get into some new material. Thank God, hallelujah. I want to talk to you about something when we're dealing with commitment, something that, that is it's ancillary, it's connected to the subject, and it's important. But it may be something you've never thought about with regards to commitment. Now, the golden voice of Pentecost is on vacation. And so I don't know where we rate Brother Larson's voice. If he's, if he's not quite on the golden rung, I don't know how far down we come. Platinum, silver, bronze, plastic. I, I don't know. I don't know. why. <laughs> Just teasing, Brother Larson. But anyhow, I've asked him to help me read today. Um, so, read for me if you would John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. And I see some of you getting your Bible. Thank you. You were listening a while ago. Thank you. Uh, all right, John chapter 2. Read for me. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover. This is Jesus. When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover. In the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man for he knew what was in man. Now, now these three verses, I'm going to have to kind of break them down and look at them, not in this exact order. But I, I want you to first of all notice what is said in verse 24. Jesus did not commit himself to them. Now, now this, is, this is interesting because verse 23 said that many believed in his name. These are believers. But Jesus does not make a commitment to these believers. Isn't that interesting? Now why did he not commit himself to them? Why? Well, the answer is in that verse. You see the word because? That's the answer. Why did he not commit himself to them? Because he knew all men. And, what's verse 25 say? And needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was for in man. For he knew what was in man. So Jesus refused to commit himself to these believers because he knew men and he knew what was in men. Now what did he know about these men? Well, let's go back now to verse 23 and look at that. That's why I told you we've got to look at these a little out of order to really grasp what's being said in this passage. In, in verse 23, it says that many believed in his name. What? When they saw the miracles. When they saw the miracles which he did. So you understand Jesus knew what was in them. They weren't following him because they loved him. They weren't following him because they, they wanted to serve him. They believed in him because he can heal my body. He can feed me bread and fishes. He can turn water into wine. That's what else had happened in chapter 2, by the way. 
They saw the miracles that he did, and they believed because of the miracles. But when Jesus saw that was the source of their belief, he didn't make a commitment to them. Now, are you, are you getting what I'm telling you here? God is not just committing himself to anybody and everybody. You see, the Lord understood that the people were not really committed to him, and so therefore he did not commit to them. This is how God works. This is an important lesson about the God of heaven. We need to know this about him. He waits on us to make the first move. What does the Bible say? When will God draw nigh unto you? Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh unto you. You will find him when you search for him with all your heart. God is waiting on you to make the first step. And so if you want God to be committed to you, do you see that there's an important principle here? understand the promises of God. I understand that he said in Matthew 28, 20, uh, I am with you all the way even to the end of the world. I understand uh, Hebrews 13, 5, I'll never leave thee nor forsake thee. But I'm telling you that based on this passage, I see something about God that he only makes a commitment to those who are willing to commit to him. God, why aren't you answering my prayer? God, where are you when I need you? He may be asking you the same thing. Where are you when he needs you? When he needs you to go talk to that person on the job, where are you? When he needs you to get up in the middle of the night and intercede for somebody, where are you? When he needs you to encourage a brother or sister that are dis, that's discouraged, sitting on a pew struggling to get free, where are you? Listen to me. I want to be so committed to God that there's no question he's committed to me. I want to be absolutely sold out to him. I don't want to just follow him because he can provide for me. I'm thankful that he is Jehovah Jireh. I'm thankful that he's my provider. I, I, I'm telling you, I, I appreciate the gifts of God and the blessings of God. But I don't want to serve him just because he's providing for me. Hallelujah. I want to serve him because I love him. I don't, I don't know if I shared this with you or not, but I heard a Jewish rabbi make a statement. and It, it really troubled me, honestly. It troubled me. And I've had to... I've had to think about it a lot to try to sort some of it out in my mind. But this rabbi was, was talking about, uh, he, he'd had a conversation with a, a Christian minister of some kind. I don't know what denomination, don't know. But and here's how this, this minister just asked him why he would not accept Jesus as his Messiah. And his response was, I don't need a God to serve me. I want to serve my God. 
I, I want that to sink in for a few minutes. And I know it's easy for us to say, well, you know, unbeliever, heathen, whatever. But I want you to think about the principle. Now, we do need God to help us. We do need God. And that's where I think this rabbi misses it, and that's why the Jews missed it for centuries. Because they thought they could do it on their own. And they didn't need God's help. But there's an aspect of what he said that really ought to cause us to stop and think. What is our perspective of God? Is it possible that we see Him as our servant? Hang on, it's coming in for a landing. I don't know what that was. Uh, I could tell everybody else could hear it. It wasn't just me, so I knew it wasn't into my earpiece. I don't know if anybody listening online could hear that buzz or not. But... Um, Anyhow, whatever it was, right at that moment when I'm trying to make a very important point. Let me try again. What is our perspective of God? Seriously, what do, do we see him as our servant? I'm afraid that really, we, we, we wouldn't say that. We'd never go so far as to say that. But in practice, could it be that the only times we talk to Him is when we need Him to do something for us? And if that's the case, doesn't that kind of make Him our servant? God, I can't pay my bills this week. Please help me. God, I'm sick. Please touch me. God, that person's treating me wrong. Please kill him. I mean, I don't know. I just, I mean, there's all kinds of prayers that go on. Got to keep you awake somehow. But, but really, if, if we spend 90% of our prayer time asking God to perform for us, doesn't that really mean that we, we pretty much see Him as our servant? Rather than praying, God, what can I do for you today? How can I serve you today? Now, look, again, there's a fine line here because... You know, we've, we've got to understand, as the Apostle Paul said, I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. I, I can't do this on my own. I've got to have God's help. But I don't want to get to the place where I see Him as my servant. There's, there's a scripture in the Old Testament, I've heard it taken out of context, by very good men, men that I highly, highly respect. They just haven't really looked into it. Um, in fact, if you've ever listened to the recordings by Elder Verbal Bean, I, I, I don't mind telling you, or if you've read the book, uh, that's a transcript of those recordings. He uses it there, and and... As much as I honor his memory and as many good things he had to say, he really took that verse out of context. 
And that is, he said that God said, concerning the works of my hands, command ye me. And that God wants us to command him. Now, the problem is, when you read it in the original, it's not a statement, it's a question. God is saying, concerning the works of my hands, command ye me? You are going to tell me what to do? That's the way the verse actually reads. It's not that God's telling us to command Him. It's that God is appalled by the idea that we would. Who are we to command God? So may God help us. Listen to me, church. What we need to do is we need to be so committed to God. So committed to His cause. We don't have to worry about the fact that He's committed to us. Isn't that really what Matthew is telling us when he quotes Jesus in saying, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. You know what that means to me? Commit to God, and God will commit to you. Those who are not committed to God should not expect God to be committed to them. Don't expect God to bail you out of every problem. Especially the problems you create yourself. Help me, Jesus. In fact, that's really, 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 if you look at the Scripture... That's what Jesus called tempting God. The devil said, the scriptures declare that if you fall, the angels will bear you up. So the devil says, in accordance with the scripture, throw yourself off of this temple and let his angels catch you. And Jesus' response was, it is written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Now, what was the devil asking Jesus to do? The devil was asking Jesus to create a problem for God to fix. That's why so many times we get ourselves into problems. We get frustrated. Something goes bad on the job. We get up and just walk off. And then for weeks, we've got no employment. And we're saying, God, please give me a job. Please give me a job. And God's saying, I did. And you blew it. It's not God's obligation to fix every problem you create. Well, it's quiet this morning. Surely you all rested since Friday night's all-night prayer meeting. Surely you're not sleeping. The aliens are coming. We'll, 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 we'll get it fixed. We'll get it fixed.
run the aisles. This, this is good. I, I'm glad to see Kaiser running the aisles this morning. There we go. That did it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was worth running the aisles for. You never know what's going to be accomplished when you run the aisles. Do it more often. Yeah. Quiet all those noises that distract. Well, praise God. So we're talking about commitment this morning. We're talking about reaching a place where God is committed to us. And that happens when we commit to Him. So what I want to do with the remainder of today's lesson, and um, probably won't get it all done today. Just, I know that surprises everybody, but just spoiler alert here, probably not going to get it done today. Um, I want to give you six areas that we need to commit to God. If we really want God to be committed to us, here are six things we need to commit to Him based on the Scripture. And maybe we'll get this done. I don't know. We'll see what happens. If we don't have any more flies in the sound system and uh, aliens landing and bombers swooping overhead and Um, maybe we'll get it done. Six areas of commitment. All right, you ready for this? Number one, our souls. Everyone say our soul. First Peter chapter 4, verse 19. Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeper, keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. Let them... Commit the keeping of their souls to God. Now, this phrase, commit the keeping, comes from one Greek word. And, and as it's used here, it means to deposit, to entrust, to commend. For protection, for safety, etc. To commit to one's charge. A thing to be cared for. What I'm saying is according to Peter, we need to commit our souls to God's care. Present our souls to Him for Him to save us. Now that's where it starts. And we might as well say the only way you can be saved is Acts 2.38. There is no other plan of salvation. No, people are not going to be saved through ignorance. Do I even need to deal with that? I, I hope I don't have to deal with that. That question comes up sometimes. What about the people who don't know? What about the people who haven't heard? Well, let me tell you something. If people can be saved by not knowing then we should never tell anybody. The worst thing we can do is tell them, and then if they reject it, they're lost. But if they can be saved by not knowing, then let's keep them in the dark. And that way we save the whole world. They're not going to be saved through ignorance. Ignorance doesn't save us from anything. 
anything. Ignor Let me say that again. Ignorance does not save us from anything. Hallelujah. Acts 2.38, Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now wait a minute, are we, are we in an apostolic church? Not one person said amen. I did hear one person say that's right. Thank God for that. Everybody else just sat there. Look, this is the message that changed our lives. Don't ever let that verse be read and you not say amen. We're going to practice again. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. That's much better. Did you say hallelujah? Oh. oh, okay, all right, all right. Just thought maybe you got confused there. All right. Hallelujahs are good too, but I asked for an amen, so that's all right. No, that's all right. You're going to learn about reading from me. You get picked up when you read from me. It's just part of the job. It's part of the job description. It's right there in the fine print. I don't know if you read that or not, but it's in the fine print. You read from me, you get picked on. Brother, Brother Daniel Stevens still has scars. He reminds me ever so often about what a tough time I give him when he has to read for me. All right, all right, all right. So we've got to commit our souls. Number two, we've got to commit our spirits. Psalm 31, verse 5. Into thine hand I commit my spirit. Thou hast redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. Now I know Jesus quoted this psalm at the time of his death. But the psalmist obviously wrote it while he was still alive. When he said, I'm committing my spirit unto you, he wasn't saying, I'm dying now. Unfortunately, there are far too many people who want to wait until death to make this commitment. I can promise you that the man Christ Jesus made that commitment long before he quoted that verse. Some of you didn't even know he was quoting a verse, but he was. He quoted a lot of verses from the cross. We, we, we forget just how Jewish Jesus was. He was a Jew. His earthly parents were Jews. He was raised in a Jewish neighborhood. He went to the Jewish school. He attended a Jewish synagogue. We forget that. We try to turn him into a European. Yeah, the, 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 the long hair, long blonde hair and blue eyes. That is not the Jesus of the Bible. First of all, he didn't have long hair. And that's a fact. That's a fact. Because Paul said it's a shame for a man to have long hair. And Paul said he had seen Jesus. Now why would he say he saw Jesus in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and then two, two chapters later say it's a shame for a man to do what he saw Jesus had done? 
Obviously, Jesus did not have long hair. And, and it was not the custom of that day. People who say that don't even know history. You know, there are not a lot of paintings of people from that time period, but there are some statues of people. Now, most of those are Romans. But if you want to, make note of this name, Flavius Josephus. Make, make note of that name, Flavius Josephus. He was a historian. He was a Jewish man, a Jewish man. But he was a historian. And there is actually a statue that was carved of him. You can get a good look of what Josephus looked like. Josephus was born about three or four years after the crucifixion. I think he was born about 37 A.D. So this is right about the time of Jesus, you understand? So I think we can take a look at him and get a pretty good idea of what Jews of that day looked like. He did not have long hair. In fact, surprise, surprise, he didn't even have a beard. He didn't. Look him up. See what you can find. Now, there are drawings of him. There are paintings of him where they add all that stuff to it, but... But, but find the statue. See if you can find the sculpture of him. See what, see what looks like. Anyhow, I'm way off the subject. All right, so commit your The Lord was committed. His spirit was committed long before he quoted the verse. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 to 23. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, Neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. So, so this is what I want you to see. He left an example. He did no sin. There was no guile in his mouth. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. He committed himself to him that judgeth I'm telling you, he had already committed his spirit. And we need to follow his example and make that commitment long before death. 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of let's God. Let's cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. Perfecting holiness. You see, perfect holiness. Perfect holiness involves both inward and outward standards of conduct. Perfect holiness is not just the way you look. Neither is it just having a good attitude. It's inward and outward. Without that, you don't have perfect holiness. All right, so number three, we got to commit to God. We got to commit our souls. We got to commit our spirits. We need to commit our ways. 30, uh, Psalm 37, verse 5. Commit thy way unto commit the Lord. Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to commit pass. Commit thy way to the Lord. 
Saints of God, we need to make sure our way is committed. How are we walking? Where are we going? What are we doing? How are we spending our time? Are our ways truly committed to the Lord? Let me tell you one of the ways that you can, you can cause that to happen. Uh, this is also from Psalm 37. Now that was verse 5. Let's read Psalm 37, verse 23. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. And so here's how you do it. You let God order your steps. God, you direct me. God, you lead me. God, let me find somebody today that needs you. Lord, put somebody on my heart that's discouraged. Show me how I can just send them a text and let them know I'm thinking about them. I'm praying for them. Well, have you ever gotten one? When you were down, somebody just sent you, hey, I'm thinking of you today. Praying for it. Did it, did it make a difference? Absolutely. Don't you think it would make a difference for somebody if you'd do that too? Let your steps be ordered by the Lord. Commit your way to Him. Let your steps be ordered. Now, now, how does this happen? Well, Romans 8 and 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit. As many as are led by the Spirit of God. What? They are the sons of they God. They are the sons of God. Those whom God leads are really His children. So the question arises, is God leading us? Or are we just doing things our own way? I did it my way. Yeah. And your way is going to lead you down the wrong path. It's going to lead you down the wrong path. You need to be led by the Spirit of God. You need to let God direct you. Now this is only going to happen if you'll spend some time talking to Him each morning. Well, all right, I'm, I'm trying to make some progress here. Um, our ways. So we got our souls, our spirits, our ways. Number four, our works. Proverbs 16 and 3. Commit thy works unto the Lord. Commit your works to the Lord. And thy thoughts shall be established. And your thoughts shall be established. Now, I want you to notice how your thoughts are connected to your works. You see that? If you'll commit your works to God, it'll help keep your thoughts right. Struggling with your thoughts? Having things go through your mind that shouldn't? Maybe there's something in your works that you need to take a look at. Maybe you don't need to spend that much time on the internet. Maybe social media is not a good thing for you. Yes, sir. 
If you find yourself being led astray and going to look at things you shouldn't look at, you got to do something about it. Make no provision for the flesh. This shouldn't be a matter of me having to police every action and every thought. But there ought to be something in your heart that says, I want to commit my works to God. What I'm doing, I want to make sure it's pleasing to God. And if my works are pleasing to God, most likely, well, according to the Scriptures, no question about it, my thoughts will end up being pleasing to God. I've often said you can't really control your thoughts. I mean, it is a fact. Sometimes random thoughts just pop in your head and you think, where in the world did that come from? That does happen. But I'm just telling you, for the most part, for the most part, those thoughts are not nearly so random. For the most part, they've come from somewhere. Something you've looked at, something you've listened to, someone you've talked to. Well, so we've got, we've got our souls, our spirits, our ways, our works. Number five, our causes. Job 5 and verse 8. I would seek unto God, and unto God would I commit my cause. Unto God would I commit my cause. Now, a cause is defined as the agent or force producing an effect or a result. A ground for choice or action, such as cause for complaint. Sufficient ground, good reason. So what I'm saying is before we make any decisions, we need to make sure that we've committed our reasons to God. God, here's the reason why I'm doing this. Am I doing it for selfish motives? Am I doing it because of my own ego? Am I doing it to get rich quick? Lord, help us. I, I, I don't know what it is about Pentecostal people. But they are, by and large, so susceptible to get-rich-quick schemes. It's like whatever the latest pyramid scandal is, well, I want in on the ground floor. And that's where you end up, it's on the ground. It, it's, it's, don't, look, just be faithful to God. Give to God what's His. Give Him more than what is His. Take care of your family. Pay your bills. Pay your taxes. Well, I didn't get any amens. I got one yes on that one. I know none of us like it. They are too high. There's no question they're too high. But we got to do it. I'd rather do that than start a jail ministry. I mean, if I'm going to start a jail ministry, I want to do it from the outside, not from the inside. 
So, you know, we, don't, we just don't have a, a whole lot of choice there, but it's required, so do it. Just do what's right, and then let God bless you accordingly. I said it the other night, and I say again, God may know you don't need to be rich. Being rich may cause you to be lost. I know some of you are saying, well, I'd like to try. Lord, just give me one chance. <laughs> just for a few minutes, let me see what it's like. Um, I understand, I understand. But, but listen, let God bless you. In fact, I, I love what the Apostle John said. He, he made this statement. I mentioned the other night this prosperity gospel that's going around Pentecost. Again, a bunch of nonsense and garbage. Anti-biblical. Doctrine of hell, that's exactly right. It really is. I got so stirred up talking bad about it, I forgot what I was going to say. I know we're talking about commitment. I know that. I hadn't forgot about that. I'm not, not quite that far gone yet. But, but um, anyhow, we're talking about this whole prosperity gospel. Oh, what John said. He said, this is your job. You're, that's nothing was in the fine print. You didn't read. You're supposed to remember where I get sidetracked and tell me where I was. Um, so, so John made this comment. We, we talked about the prosperity gospel, but here's what John said. He said, I would that you would be in health and prosper even as your soul prospers. You know, I don't think it's a bad thing for you to prosper financially in direct proportion with how much you're prospering spiritually. If you're really prospering spiritually, then you might be able to handle some financial prosperity. But the minute the financial prosperity starts taking precedent and the spiritual prosperity starts dropping off, that's when you're in trouble. And that's why we can't go around preaching prosperity to everybody. If prosperity is the only sign of the will of God, then Jesus was out of the will of God. What is that old song, Would Jesus Wear a Rolex? Some of you, that's way before your time. It was out there. It really was. It was, it was out there. Would Jesus wear a Rolex on his television show? Um, the answer to both is no. It's one of those rhetorical questions. Um, help me, Jesus. Why do you guys do this to me? This can't be my fault. All right, Brother, Brother Larson's taking full responsibility this morning. Everybody blame him. It's his fault. He's sitting up here on the platform. It's all his fault. All right, so oh, we got some amens on that one. How about that? that was, you're getting more amens than I'm getting today. Maybe I should just turn the mic over to you. Um, before making any decisions, we need to make sure we've committed our reasons to God. Here's the reason I want to do this, God. Here's why I'm pursuing this, God. This is why I want this job, God. 
right? What is the motive behind it? Dictionary goes on to define a cause as an aim, an object, or a principle advocated and supported by an individual or group. So the aims and objects of importance in our life must be committed to God. But really, when we look at the original Hebrew, which is what Job was written in, you look at the original Hebrew, and, and you get some, some additional light on this word cause. In the original, it means a reason. It means an end. It means an estate. Now think about that. Job said, I, I, I'm going to commit my estate to God. Even when God takes it all away. My estate is committed to God. Now, our estate involves our finances. Luke chapter 16, verses 10 through 11. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If therefore ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And so, so it's obvious, he's talking about mammon, we talked about this the other night, That's, that was the God of money. He's talking about money here, and, and Jesus makes this statement that if you're faithful in a little bit, then you'll be faithful in a lot. But if you're unjust in a little bit, you're going to be unjust in a lot. It's just the way it works. Our finances, our finances, our estate needs to be committed to God. Let, let me throw something out there that some of you probably have never even thought about, but you know... People sometimes sit down and they make out a will, which every one of you should do. Every one of you should do. We, we've had a number of situations connected to the church where there was a lack of will, a lack of, of uh, burial policy. Thank God for a wonderful church family that just steps up to the plate. But we cannot just sit back and expect the church to do that for us. That's our responsibility to get that done. So you need to do that. You need to do that. Get you a will. And, and um, I mean, you, can, you don't have to pay a lawyer to have a will. You just write up something simple. Get you a couple witnesses. My wife is a licensed notary. She can notarize it for you. Won't even charge you for it. Um, but, but you need to do that. You need to have a will. You need to have life insurance. But I want you to think about something. We're talking about committing our estate to God. What, what happens when you die to your life insurance policy, to your estate? It goes to the family, right? But, but have you ever thought about, does God deserve a tithe off of that too?
I mean, does he? I think he does. Now, I can't prove that to you. I can't show you chapter and verse for it, but I'm going to tell you this. I've made sure in my will, 10% of my estate is going to be paid in tithes. So if Brother Howard's still around, he'll get that 100 bucks. <laughs> whatever my estate amounts to is not going to be much, but whatever it is. I, I just, a lot of people never think about it. They, they divide it up among the kids, divide it up here, there, there, and they never think about God. But are we really committing our estate to God? If we're not even including Him in the estate. Just food for thought. Not a mandate, not a command. Just something to think about. And I guess you all are thinking because I'm not hearing any response. First Timothy chapter 6 verses 17 through 20 read. Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God. Don't trust in uncertain riches. Boy, there's a good scripture against prosperity gospel, isn't it? Don't trust in uncertain riches, but trust in the living God. Who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. Yes. That they do good, that they be rich in good works. Be rich in good works. Ready to distribute, mm -hmm. willing to communicate, yes. laying up and store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. Yes. O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so called. And, and, and so this verse that we read in our text, verse 20, you kind of get an idea of the whole thing, what all he's talking about here that that we need to make sure is committed. Because he does deal with the estate, our finances. Finances are a part of our estate. But our estate is not just our finances. Our estate also involves our family. Matthew chapter 19 verses 5 and 6. And said, for this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife. And they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore, they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. We need to commit our family to God. Lord, this is about you, and it's going to be centered around you. As for me and my house, me and my house, we are going to serve the Lord. Amen. Read for me Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 25. Wives, submit yourself unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church. And gave himself for it. Now, it's amazing how many times people want to just deal with this, these first couple of verses. Wives, submit yourselves. Submit yourselves. And, and they ignore this last verse. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Amen. 
and gave himself for it. Now, does Christ have expectations of the church? Absolutely. Does Christ go around making demands of the church? Does Christ use the church as a floor mat? Does Christ belittle the church? No, he loved the church and he gave himself for it. Let me just say this, husbands. You want your wives to submit? Learn to love them like Christ loved the church. Isn't that why we have no problem submitting to Christ? Because we understand His love? Because He's shown His love over and over and over. And we love Him because He first loved us. That's what the Bible says. That's not just the words to a kid's song. That's Scripture. We love Him because He first loved us. You love your wife the way Christ loved the church. And you're going to find it's not nearly as difficult for her to submit to you. But even then, let me show you something that we skip over. We started here in verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. But what about verse 21? Submitting yourselves one to another. Oh, 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 oh. We kind of overlooked that one, didn't we? Submitting yourselves one to another. In the fear of God. Well, that puts a new spin on submission. Kind of gets us out of this dictator role. Well... See, see, it, it really it kind of goes back to what I was talking about earlier. Christ committed himself to them because they committed themselves to Christ. Or he didn't because they didn't. And the same thing works here. We constantly want them to submit, want them to submit. And we don't have an attitude of submission. We want them to serve and we don't have a spirit of service. Well, um, I start to say nobody running the aisles on this. We did have somebody run the aisles earlier, thank God, but um, different reason. You don't have to remind them. They might think that I actually got really exciting there for a few minutes, you know. Man, I mean, this he was doing so good, even one of the young people got up and ran the aisles. That's what I want you to remember from this service. Don't remember why, just remember, while I was teaching, he got up and ran the aisles. Let me give you number six, and then we're going to have to call it, call it quits for today. And really, I'm, I'm not too far from finishing up, but um, number six. I said well, there are six things we need to commit to the Lord, so, so we, we need to commit these things to him, our souls, our spirits, our ways, our works, our causes. And number six, 
our consciences. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou be, by them mightest war a good warfare, huh? holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck. You know what? I didn't realize the time. This one's going to take me a little while. We probably just go ahead and come to the music and let's 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 just bring this to a close this morning because I've got I've got a full page of notes just on this one point here and I we'll save this for next week, Lord willing, and um, we'll deal with committing our consciences to the Lord in next week's lesson and then we want to talk about what happens when God commits to us, when we do show Him we are so committed to Him that He, in turn, makes a commitment to us and what that brings about in our life. We'll discuss all that, Lord willing, in next week's lesson. Let's stand this morning. I want to be committed to Him. I want Him to know that I am fully committed, fully committed. That I've committed my soul, my spirit, my ways, my works, my cause, my conscience. I want it all to be submitted to Him. I don't want to live a life that leaves me in charge. Because I'll mess it up. And so will you. So let's, right now, right where you are, would you just lift your hands? Would you make a fresh commitment to the Lord? Would you let Him know, I 